interested in regionalism, just in the regional history of Pittsburgh, but also regionalism and art. And I think regionalism and art is, is an interesting subject. Yeah. In terms of just fine art broadly or yeah, kind uh, of like folk how art. things play, even yeah. in certain, you know, whether it's music or art or whatever, like some Pittsburgh was always like a place where we were missed on tours because people would go from yeah. Cleveland to Chicago or Cleveland to Buffalo buffalo to new york and then down to philly you know it's a whole different it's a whole different midwestern like we're not quite the midwest even yeah. though people like to think that we're the midwest that's i've been having this conversation over and over again yeah. you know I, I tend to so i'm from the west coast so like, sure. there's a whole different perception over there and usually when i think about pittsburgh or sort of when i've thought about pittsburgh in the past because it's part of pennsylvania it's always kind of been east coast for me Pittsburghers bristle when people mistake Pittsburgh for Philadelphia. It's like yeah. mistaking San Francisco for Los Angeles. Okay. It's that far apart. Is there that sort of rivalry there as well? Um, sure, but we crush them in every every <laughs> situation, especially sports. You know, if they yeah, could yeah. just well, dream yeah. of winning a yeah. Super Bowl, it would be amazing. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we no, I, I like having a friendly rivalry with Pittsburgh, with Philadelphia, but like I've I love Philly, but it's just it's it's fascinating how even people from like Virginia mistake Pittsburgh for being near Philly or how many people, when I say I live in Pittsburgh, they just think I say Philly. Like they just yeah. combine the two. Yeah. So Pittsburgh is like, I mean, and so the whole Rust Belt, like people don't even, a lot of people don't even know what the Rust Belt is, A, and then B, they're, it's hard to understand like the way Pittsburgh, St. Louis, and Chicago fit together in the industrial engine of America and how different it is from here to, cause it's all Hills here. And then, you know, as soon as you get in, as soon as you start going West about an hour West, it just flattens out and it's flat until Denver. The Hills are the reason for the industry, right? Correct. So it's just like, as soon as like you could get into, as soon as they could run rail lines to Pittsburgh from Philadelphia, it made the trip from either like four days by, wagon to like you know 10 or 12 hours or something and it was like it's called the horseshoe curve and it was you know it's up by johnstown where steve ditko is from so you know there's a lot of really there's a lot of really interesting history in this area that uh, uh, pittsburghers grow up with that we don't really i didn't really understand I, I was there until i moved to the west coast and was like oh it's so different here you know, and even New York is so different, yeah. you know, and it's only like eight hours away. So Pittsburgh, because it's over the Appalachian Mountains, like this was the Wild West in 18, you know, in the Civil War. Like this was the last outpost of the 13 colonies for about 100 years. And then you had the Louisiana Purchase. And so like the, the, the whole territories went on beyond this. But this was where like you went to go get a job in a factory or go lose yourself. Like if you were an East coaster, like this was as far as you could go up until about 1865 before you, you know, went into the wilderness of Kentucky and West Virginia and those things. So quite fascinating. I mean, that's sort of, I mean, I, I love talking about, I love talking about everything around Pittsburgh. Yeah. I'm in town to do some video stuff and we were doing a lot of stuff in in and around the the downtown area. And it didn't, didn't occur to me until every single person that we interviewed warned us that there's probably going to be a train whistle at some point during that sure. conversation because a train splits like right through the middle of the downtown yeah which uh, I, I don't think i've seen it really yeah so they you know the the coal like the hills surrounding downtown were full of uh coal and they realized that they could just start using the coal 
and shipping it up and down the river to the you know to the Mississippi from here um, very early on in the 19th century, and then and then so some of those hills got they didn't strip strip mine them or clear yeah. cut them, but you know um, so it's just like the the factories were downtown, you know, and they just you know they went up river both in both sides, and so I live uh, up river from downtown Pittsburgh on the on the southern river, which is the Monongahela, and you know. A stone's throw from where we we're having this interview was the largest blast furnace ever in the world, you know, from 1865 until about 1930 or so is the largest. And it was you know, like every every skyscraper was built here. You know, yeah. like every all the steel the for steel, every yeah. rail was yeah. from here, every tank, every everything, you know. So the entire 20th century was kind of forged right here, you know. So it's a it's a fascinating, you know, because like you start to think about like those ghosts and and that kind of stuff but it's it's just such a part of the city and then they tried to revitalize it and had like this renaissance over the years but it's a reason for people to get out of here so it's just like you know whether it's andy warhol or billy strayhorn or just that sort of like bruce springsteen vibe gotta get out of here yeah so it's just kind of like you have like this drive like there's a there's you know the, the working class mentality still is intact even if the working class has been destroyed here but here we still have this real intersection of um old school working class and like the new you know these the new values of like the new world, but just like, it's like one of the few places in um, the Midwest that um, is still kind of like democratic in the truest sense, but like has, you know, was like they voted for Obama and then they voted for Trump. And a lot of it was like, like a lot of the people around here where it was kind of like, they were like working class people, disenfranchised working class people who like were fine with voting for Obama, you know, and then we're just pissed off and then are kind of voting for Trump to be pissed off. And people who live in the coast just can't even understand that attitude. How you can swing. Whatsoever. And I, yeah. and, and so it's just like, it's, it's like, it's a lot of like the Italian American, the Irish American, you know, like white working class, the forgotten working class that they talk yep. about. And that doesn't excuse them from their, moral from uh, electing a monster yeah but it's uh it's <laughs> yeah. quite a it's it's just a conversation that it's just it's interesting to like it's interesting to like talk about it if you can re- actually like have a conversation about it but it's just like i've you know because this is truly an interzone or an intersection or like a slice through a very interesting tri-state area that doesn't exist anywhere else or maybe in the world you know but specifically in america you know this is the highest capita age median outside of Dade County, Florida, the retirement community, because there's so many working class people that didn't move away from here. Yeah. And then their kids all left. And so then you have this huge hospital infrastructure that's taking care of these working class people. Well, and that's a whole generation of people who didn't left, but in a sense probably should have because their jobs went away. But they couldn't have, you know, yeah. so it's just like, why would they? They all had like wonderful houses, you know, they had amazing brick houses. But it's that much more of a burden to the city because a lot of them have probably been out of work for a, a the long time. The tax base goes away. So like when I was in high school, for example, I got a letter, like I was living in California and I got a letter from the state of Pennsylvania asking me to move back and, and I would get a certain tax-free status because they had, huh. lo- they had such a brain drain. You know, because like, you know, the mills shut down in like 81 and then by 91, it was so bleak. But like by the time, like we're, we've already been on our like downfall 
complete rock bottom and then rebuilding for the last 30 years, whereas your Detroit's, your Gary Indiana's are still on the decline and flattening out. Yeah. And so we are, I mean, I firmly believe that Pittsburgh is San Jose 1991. Like, this is going to be the next boomtown. Like, we, like we, I, I interviewed the mayor yesterday, and he actually, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I have to say I really, I, I liked him as far as politicians go. Yeah. It seems like a a pretty straight shooter and and yeah yeah and he that's one of the things he said and and he didn't really shy away from the fact that the city was making all the wrong decisions for a while and and it's that that idea it's the idea of like the alcoholics anonymous idea of having to kind of bottom out before you can really write yourself true but you've but you've been through that right but then so we're lucky in that regard like you know because this this is an old money town like this is like yeah you know, the melon and the fricks and, and the and yeah, and, yeah so this yeah. is like this you know they're not going to let this go the way of the dodo or anything this in like and and unlike a detroit this is like a place that actually could bounce back yeah. because of because of its you know i mean this is the hottest real estate market in the country so it's cmu a, is a huge part of that right sure but it's also you know cmu is like the rand corporation i mean cmu is like the, <laughs> is like the is the military is the is the brain trust for the military you're actually seeing some really cool little startups pop out of it so there is a technology scene and they're part of the i mean they, cmu is the reason why google came why uber came yeah the the rub of that is that they all get a tax-free status for yeah. 10 years and then don't pay any taxes to the city <laughs> and then leave after 10 years so i mean like, yes it's all good but yeah. it's bad so yes and no it's like it's really good but it's also just sort of like they're doing they're just so desperately you know like the the guy in the chicken costume with the giant arrow standing on the corner yeah. like please please yeah, come yeah, here yeah, come yeah, here yeah, so yeah. it's like it's finally catching on. I mean, like it's the first year that we've gone, you know, instead of losing population, we're gaining population in the last like three years this happened. So like you have to understand for like for me, for when I was in high school and then going away to college where this was the absolute rock bottom. No, don't ever go back to Pittsburgh. You must make a life somewhere else. Me and a lot of my peers did that. And then they become they became trapped, whether in San Francisco or, in, or in New York, they can't get a job like that and come back to Pittsburgh. But in Pittsburgh, you can still buy a house for under $100,000 and have a really nice go of it if you can piece it together. So it's just like it's a really interesting time. Like it's it just it's like it's going to be so different in 10 years. So I'm fortunate to be, you know, like, yeah, in, you know, this happening now in my life. You know? They literally sought you out and they sent letters to everybody under a certain age who was from. Sure. That's insane. Yeah. And during the 90s, because it was so bad during yeah. the 90s. Like in the 90s, it was like really bad. It's hard to like, you know, because even San Francisco, I lived in San Francisco in the early 90s, you know, like and it was like at post earthquake pre dot com boom. It was it was a wasteland like it was empty, yeah. you know. And so it was like also like, you know, halcyon, halcyon days like, you know. Yeah. You know, it was amazing because you could just be like a weird, you know, arty person and do a lot of cool stuff and, you know, have a super huge supportive community behind you. And it was just like, it was such a different way of life, like the quality of life. I was like, this is incredible. You yeah. know, like you have to remember, like in places like Pittsburgh in the early 90s, there was no such thing as a coffee shop, let alone... I mean, you had to go to like a diner to get coffee. There was no coffee shop. Yeah. There was no such I thing. I did that about an hour ago, right. so I lived a little, a little bit of that. How big of a shadow does Warhol cast over the art community? Here? Oh, it's great, but I love Warhol. So, like, yeah. I'm a huge proselytizer of Warhol. So, um, I he does cast a huge shadow. But then, the the thing with Warhol that that his his dealer 
told me in person was the thing you have to remember about boreholes, they're always beautiful. So when you see one in person, look at it, inspect it. It's a well-made object. It's a beautiful work of art, regardless if you like the imagery or not. Yeah. And he just cracked the code. And so basically they just gave, you know, the business world, the art world, they just gave him a blank check. Like, you figured it out for us. You cracked the code. And so it's really interesting. Like, but I love Warhol because then you can apply Warhol's um, sort of, specifically his graphic techniques you know that apply to all of painting and all of comics and there's so screen printing and you know, and the in the modularity of it and yeah. it's a great gateway for a lot of people and then just Collage. like for sure yeah. and it's a it's a better uh model in 2017 than you know the previous models like you know picasso or you know or even Duchamp or Matisse, like it's like I think he survived the 20th century a lot better than some of his peers. He's an interesting example in that, and this applies to a lot of people. But he's he's from here, but he he ended up being a New York guy. So most iconic artists or people who are not familiar with where he's from, he is identified with New York City for sure, absolutely. And and um and that's 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 I think reflective of like sort of like an American dream or like going yeah. to Hollywood or like, you know, the art world in New York is the hall is the same as Hollywood. So, but like the, you know, just the, interestingly like him and uh, Moselle Thompson, mm-hmm. who both went to the same high school about 10 years apart, Moselle Thompson was black. They were the, some of the first artists to actually do LP covers in the late forties. And they were both graphic artists who then went on to like make uh, paintings and stuff like that. And uh, they were both gay. And then, you know, Moselle, tragically killed himself probably in the late 60s he didn't have some of the same opportunities that maybe a warhol had yeah. but i think it's interesting that these two guys that went to the same high school both started doing lp covers at the same time and lp covers were like a new thing in the late 40s like you know they used to just be the paper sleeve and stuff yeah. like that and so just like um it is interesting so uh, in terms of he went to new york but there's still this connection beyond campbell you know uh campbell soup Hines yeah. and stuff like that. Over the decades, though, has has it shifted to a point where it's important for artists to stay in the community and, and represent Pittsburgh? Well, I think that's the change now. There's a local filmmaker named Tony Booba who was the sound guy on George Romero's movies. Oh, wow. yeah. And uh, his it's mother's house was the house in... in Living in, Dead? In Martin, yeah. Wow. Like, if you ever saw Martin, like, it takes place down, down the road there in Braddock, Pennsylvania, but... Tony Bubo, for example, he did a great movie in, I think, 1987 called Lightning Over Braddock, which was a doc- documentary about Pittsburgh and the steel industry. But then he talked about how he tried to get work. You know, Romero helped him try to get work in Hollywood, but it was all about, like, you had to be, like, a Hollywood guy. And it was, like, it was bad that he was, like, had any regional from Pittsburgh connection, whereas now he hmm. feels like 20, 30 years later, it's flipped and it's better to have yeah. a regional connection because then you have this sort of an identity that, you know, in this global age like a lot of and, and for filming specifically like everything happens outside of hollywood and new york now sure oh yeah know? but oh, pittsburgh yeah i mean there's a lot of great movies that have been filmed well. in pittsburgh beyond striking distance and uh yeah what's the jean-claude van damme oh movie that i was could not tell you great. yeah um but yeah so it's just like i think for me you know it's about like you know, just to segue into comics, maybe yeah. a little bit. It's like you know, Ed Pisker honestly represents the first artist from Pittsburgh who has achieved worldwide acclaim who did not leave Pittsburgh. Like I that's could, crazy because that's really happened in the last five years, maybe. That's right. And so I could. I, I mean, there's no other fine art. Like there's no art market here. There's yeah. no collector base here. So like, as somebody, you know, who's involved in like, you know, 
art collecting, you know, 10 years ago, like there was nobody collecting art here. And then there's no galleries here. There's no real avant-garde galleries here. So like there's some amazing musical acts that are from Pittsburgh that never really left Pittsburgh, like mm. anti-flag or, okay. um, you know, uh, Wiz Khalifa yeah. or, you know, Girl whoever. Talk is from yeah, here. Girl Talk. And, yeah. and, and so it's just like, you know, but that's different, you know, so it's just like, being an artist and then not having they tour, to make like it. that's what they do, you know. Sure. So right. they, they could. It, it's easier for you to use a city like this as home base for if sure. you're touring around anyway. Very well said. Yeah, I agree. I agree one hundred percent. So to be a, a visual artist, like most of my friends who are from here who didn't leave here to go make a life somewhere in New York or in California yep. for visual arts, are not known for being from Pittsburgh. Whereas, I feel like I, you know, like I'm. I'm trying to reclaim that a little bit for myself after being in California for 10 years and New York for 10 years. And then being now in Pittsburgh for almost now it's been 10 years. I moved back here in 2007. And so, you know, Ed to me, Ed Pisker is just in my experience and from my POV is the first person to make it. I mean, he has an exhibition. He's going to be part of an exhibition at Smithsonian next year. You know I mean? So like, I mean, Ed made it. And he didn't have to leave Pittsburgh. And that can be reflective of a lot of things. Comics, yeah. global market, blah, blah, blah. Internet. The internet, sure. Yeah. But, you know, it's just like Ed is just like, that's what I'm so happy for Ed because, like, it, he just represents this new regional POV that I think is, like, it's about being friends. And he's very much, he's working on a, a memoir right now that's about, like, growing up in Pittsburgh. How much has that shifted? Because I... Aside from being a a, a a daily strip cartoonist for the paper, or you know, being in like the Marvel bullpen, um, has it in the past been necessary for cartoonists, for comic book artists, to be located in a cultural center like L.A. or New well, York? I mean, this is sort of. I, I mean, you know, like I had to move to San Francisco to kind of do the comics and be around the people yeah. that you know, like that. My kind of comics in the early nineties played quote unquote in san francisco where they did not play oh interesting in pittsburgh yeah. i remember like you know i love to say like when my book got reviewed by the comics journal in 1995 like all my friends were from san francisco were thrilled for me and all my friends from pittsburgh laughed at me like now you know you suck if the journal likes you and all that bullshit huh. like it's like this is such a genre town like they don't you know, they're interested in, like, genre comics and stuff like that. They're not interested in arty comics. Well, you're, you're talking specifically about consumption of, of comics or... Makers also. Like, like what are what are some examples of some local people who are really sort of genre... Jim Rugg and Tom Scioli. Oh, Jim. Yeah. yeah. I guess I guess so. I, I guess they are genre, but, you know, I guess I... They're very arty genre. They are, yeah, exactly. But, like, so, but that's what I mean. The Pittsburgh school is sort of like, you know, that all comes from... I don't think Jim Rugg is going to mock you for getting a good review in the comics journal. Yeah, but you got that. That's a different time. That's <laughs> yeah, 20 yeah. years yeah, later. Yeah, you know, like 20 years ago, like yeah. that's a whole other thing. So it's just like those guys, like, you know, they started kind of hanging out together like 10, 15 years ago. And even then, you know, it was just, it was still a very much a genre town. Like, yeah. whereas like, you know, like being in New York in like 2000, 2001, 2002, like you can kind of like, it was more like I could have conversations with Dan Nadal about, you know, more uh arty comics and art comics and genre comics and we could mix all those two together and he was we could go we could go see design shows at the society of illustrators or something and then also go see like weird you know 
weird comic conventions at, 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 across from you know Madison Square Garden I, or something I was, like that. I was there about a month ago. Yeah, yeah Big Apple Con. Yeah. yeah. It's the thing. When I first started seeing you around like SPX or MoCA, um, and that was the thing that always st- stuck out is you were the guy with the long boxes. Yeah. You know, you were there in this indie comics world. You were there in a world where – so much of what they do is defined by moving against that, moving away from superhero comics. And you were the guy who is who is kind of trying to bring – and Tom, Tom Scioli is a really good example of that too because yeah. he's basically doing like a take on Kirby. Sure. But then he broke through. He's like, he's like you know, gorky. Like he yeah. – you know, he like broke through the Picasso code and then had his <laughs> own, you know, his own style or something yeah. like that. So um, – but, you know, my thing was that in the old days – you know, it was it was like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mar- Love and Rockets, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dark Knight, and Watchmen and Mouse were so like literally indie, all on the same yeah. shelf. So like they were, you know, just the same distributor. So you yeah. still, even if you didn't, there was no fairs, right? So yeah. you all had to like you you had to like fight for your shelf space. So it wasn't like everything just got separated. So like the separation sort of keeps us apart because. When, especially when the art comics thing, like the Kramer's Ergo, yeah. you know, type of stuff, like from 2004, 2005, like people were so, you know, the traditional genre-based comics people and the literary-based comics people, your your Seths, your Joe Matts, were so antagonistic yeah. towards yeah. art comics that the only thing that we could talk about was older genre comics. Huh. So the people, you know, most of us all grew up on that stuff. So at least I would find common ground by like, do you remember that weird Marshall Rogers comic? And people would say no. And I would br- start bringing them to shows just to show people like Joe McCullough or Chris Motner or whomever, just like, you know, remember this, remember this. And then I just started having a short box at the picture box table in order to sort of like, you know, just sort of like spread that, you know, like it's like being into old weird movies or something. Have you seen this one? Have you seen this one? Check this one out. And so, like, I just appreciated that then we could sidestep talking about whether you liked the new Kramer's Ergo anthology or not, or what you liked about her, or the, how much you hated Paper Rad, and we could just talk about this other stuff. And that's really surprising for, for me to hear, you know, that, that again, I think, like, traditionally that what a lot of the – underground alternative comics was based on was this idea again of moving away from the genre stuff but but you're saying that generation of guys from the 90s they had more of an a, a, a backlash against abstraction in comics uh, yeah i i i i would have to i mean i the talking about genre it wasn't like we were the thing that i bristled at was and i i can remember to this day was just feeling like you were felt to be like it was wrong to like a lot of this really great, you know, quote unquote genre material. So like whether it was Jack Kirby comics, you know, Fantastic yeah. Four comics, John Byrne Fantastic Four comics, like yeah. whatever it was, it was just Pulpy. like, well, <laughs> yeah. I've moved on past that stuff. <laughs> I only read now. these yeah. serious comics. And then to me, the final straw was that New York Times magazine cover in like 2003 where it was like, you know, all the, the cognoscenti of literary comics at the time or something. And to me, that just tore it. Like, I was just like, that's it. I can't take this crap anymore. Because it was just like, there was so, like, Brend- whether it was like, like, Brendan McCarthy. Like, no one was talking about Brendan McCarthy yeah. in, like, 2004 or something. Yeah. And I'd be like, well, what about Brendan McCarthy? And people are like, who's that? And I'm like, well, he did this crazy comic called Paradox. Or he did this thing called Rogan Ghost. You don't remember? And they're like, no. And so, just trying to get everybody to sort of like hang out in the same 
playground again and just at least acknowledge each other not like you can't just like cut off whole just because like i'm i'm a mil- i'm a i'm a filmmaker well i like michael bay yeah. movies <laughs> well but psh, i don't do anything like that i only do these you know arty jim jarmusch movies yeah. or something like that and like that's cool but like it's like saying like well i don't like those things don't exist to me and so like what i you know, even in shows, you saw this. Like SPX is a very different show than Heroes Con, of course, right? Yeah. Heroes Con is a very different show than, you know, what is now Cab or something yeah. like that. And so, you know, that's why a place like Toronto is so interesting because most people, even the most avant-garde cartoonists in 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 Toronto, is basically at least familiar with the stuff that the beguiling has, you know, floor to ceiling. And it's probably get, just getting out of the United you know? States in general, right? Well, it's just like, it's this, yes, but it's just like, you know, the whole thing where the, the way the shops used to be where you would have back issues yeah. and you would go to conventions yeah, yeah, yeah. to trade back issues, that just went the way of the dodo in like, I mean, that just bifurcated or whatever, where it's like you had your, like SPX and Ape were the only shows in the nine, in the mid to late yeah, they started, and I remember I went to the first ape. The, you know, I didn't go to the first SPX because I was living in the, in the West Coast. But the first apes were just like James Kulchaka, yeah, you know, yeah. uh Joe Chapetta, John. You know, I, th- I don't think John P was there. Tom Hart was there. Like, you know, it was just like, and so it was just like there was like ten people, you know, <laughs> and then like top shelf, if you remember, was like the middle ground between yeah. like Fanographics. And then, like, mainstream, like, you know, like, Vertigo comics yeah. or something. Like, top Shelf tried it. And Chris Starros was really smart because he was, like, a great editor. The thing with Starros is that if you submitted something to him, he was, like, at least he would try to help you, like, make it make sense to the comic sure. shop crowd. They were doing some genre stuff, I guess, now that I think about it. I mean, Brent Brent was, like, a big sure. genre guy. Sure. But so it's, like, it's an interesting uh, – It's a, you know, it's just – people. it's hard to remember. And it's also hard to remember that everything was – totally in the toilet in 99 2000 where everybody from jess smith to rob liefeld to chris ware all thought they were going to have to get a like a straight job yeah. like every, until until chris ware's book came out in 2000 and then like the book publishers got interested and fan assigned that deal with norton and whatever in like 2003 you know you you had this golden era and then it's just like it's great until about 2008 with like the economic crisis but then also what was interesting is that that was like when everybody that's around now got interested and that's what I call the Obama bubble because like a lot of kids that went to school and like when they were 18 in 2008 are now suffering that really difficult time of being a cartoonist when you're in your late 20s and it's not as exciting as it was and maybe you're not making as much money and it's not 2010, 2011, it's not exciting anymore, you know. And so it's just like I've just noticed this, you know, I've seen – I've been around for 30 years now. So like I've seen three different waves of this, you know, yeah. three different crashes in a way. So like I'm, I'm interested also in regionalism, just to bring it back to regionalism is how you support your local scene and how the local scene of Pittsburgh was completely seeded by my mentor, Bill Boyshell of Copacetic comics back in the mid eighties, you know, right. So like back in the mid eighties and he was doing shows before that. And so the first time I ever met Bill was at a show when I was like, I don't know, nine or 10 years old. And I bought Captain America 100 off of him for $10, you know? And so it's just like, like, but that scene, like the reason that Jim Ruggs from here, Ed Pisker's from here, Tom Scully lives here, 
and I, you know, I, and I grew up here and had a strong comics background was because like somebody like Bill was there yeah. to provide that infrastructure. So now we, you know, we have like, I think a really good scene now, you know, because we're interested in like, I don't know. And I think we're interested in comics history and like, we're like, like, like I said to Connor Williamson when he was here uh, a couple weeks ago, I said, Pittsburgh is more uh, stick than carrot in terms of, uh, you know, how we go about our comics history. Like, I mean, and, we and would fostering just... Fostering the artistic Yeah, I mean, community. we would just sit around, I mean, like, you know, sit around the store and just make fun of each other. Like, what? How do you not know that Steranko comic? Like, what do you mean you don't know who Steranko is? Look at this, and we'll show you. The, the great irony about it is, I think I knew at some point that you were from here, but I'd forgotten it, and I was I was going to be in town for a few days for work stuff. So I was trying to, you know, I, I try to at least set up one interview while I'm out for, for the podcast. So I had had Ed on the show a year or two ago, so I wanted to get Jim on and Jim was out of town and, and uh, you know, it's, it's that thing where everybody comes, a, becomes a cultural ambassador and Jim says, well, here's a list of many of our of fine cartoonists. And the beauty of it is, is that, uh, you know, between uh, you and, and Ed and Jim and Tom and he, I can't, I'm blanking on her name, but he had, he had recommended a web cartoonist as well. You know, in a sense, your work couldn't be more different sure. but you're all you all end up being big cheerleaders that's, for one another but that's why we i think that's why we it's like you know just to use ed's metaphor it's like early hip-hop we all had our different styles we're yeah, not yeah. in competition with each yeah. other you know so it's just like i'm you know like i i mean i won't i won't try to categorize this but like that's what i find great about what how we can hang out and foster the scene because we're all sort of you know borrowing from each other mm. but using you know using each other to, 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 to encourage each other and bounce ideas off of each other and be supportive of each other. I mean, it's a lonely profession. And so yeah. if, if you have peers that are operating at the highest capacity, I mean, those guys have been operating at the highest capacity yeah. for the last 10, 15, 20 years. Like, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's truly inspiring. Yeah, you're doing a lot of teaching as well, right? I um. I started my own, you know, correspondence course in the grand tradition. Oh, of, correspondence. That's interesting. But now I have a residency. Okay. So now I've, I've, I've flipped it into like, so I have a, you know, the house that we're in right now, I have a mirror of this house and um, I have a, right now I have a resident from, from Where else but in Pittsburgh could a cartoonist have a mirror? Yeah, because a row house, yeah. you know, so it's the exact same size, yeah. you know. But even just like having two houses sure. that you yeah, occupy yeah. is kind yeah, of crazy. Yeah. That again, I think, and, and this sort of gets back to, you know, what I've been dealing with with a lot of these companies is there's a sense of that if you're going to exist in a place like Pittsburgh, then you are kind of morally obligated to try to give back to the community and help foster that locally. I think so. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for, and only, if only because of my own, I mean, I just, I wouldn't exist if it wasn't yeah. for Bill, you know, so there's that, but it's just like, also, you know, there's something that's happened while I've had this correspondence course for a few years. And then I have some great students who've been sort of with me for a few years. Like the way I, teach in the way I try to um, I'm interested in like teaching as more like sports or something you know and so like you know the sports like with like whether it's a golf swing or like a baseball swing like you know it's mechanics yeah. that let you hit that ball out of the park it's not your inspiration on that particular and you day. have a very specific goal in that case and and so 
something that I saw in comics was like a lack of discipline or understanding yeah. about how certain things worked. I just had Josh Bear on the show and he basically said the exact same thing, yeah. which is funny because, you know, when you look at his stuff, you don't think of him as being necessarily a super technically proficient cartoonist, but he he has the same, a similar kind of back to the basics model that he's using to teach his students. For sure. And the thing that you just find is that the people that are teaching comics whether it's like at an art school or whatever are generally not well versed in the language yeah I find. yeah and so i started to i i got the opportunity to teach in some different places like parsons and new school mm. um and that was great but then you're adjunct and then they fire you because you know you're only going to stay for however many years and then blah, blah, blah. probably comics so comics and i just and then i also realized like oh they're paying us so little for you know so much work and then, yeah. so i just you know and there's a tradition of correspondence courses in comics and so i just started there because i actually had moved out to new mexico and i needed to start a job for myself but then what i notice is like i have these so like i also i've also been involved in sports and like you know sport coaching sports teams whether it's hockey or girls roller derby you know softball and stuff like that and like there's something just about like kind of like a like that kind of mindset that's sometimes easier to apply to like learning like a, a, an artistic skill set, you know. And so um, using those metaphors can be helpful, but also using that kind of framework can be helpful. So I'm more of like a, you know, I'm more of like a coach or something instead of like, you know, you're not necessarily going to play the game exactly the same way I played the game yeah. or something like that. But like. You know, and then also as you as one gets older, you know, it's just like I'm not interested in necessary. I mean, I'm interested in being I'm still competitive, but I'm not trying to. I don't need to prove myself in the same way that I did. I had to prove myself 20 years ago. So I'm interested in helping somebody else prove themselves. And then so some of you know the things that I've gone through, you know, until point being is like I've had these online students and then when they come to the residency and i meet them in person and we have a whole different exchange um i get more interested in kind of like making this sort of like all-star team you know and then having this sort of all-star team that can like change sort of like a superhero group or something where you just like you can always keep changing the the parts and yeah. then you generally have this quality of like you know the certain team but just like in sports there's always going to be superstars, but there's always going to be, you know, players that ride the bench and then sort of need to be on the bench. You need to have a deep yeah. bench. So it doesn't mean you're always going to be like the superstar knocking it out of the park, but it means that you got to work hard to like, you got to be a grinder. You need like a grinder line and that kind of those things. So I like, I like doing that because then it like, it, it it's sort of, you know, it's a long, this is a long-term thing. You're not going to, people, a lot of people want to have, you know, fame and fortune like you know in their rookie season so to speak yeah. and you know they have a hard time accepting that it's going to be tens of thousands of hours of work you know just to be successful at playing the game you know let alone you know like getting on a good team or like maybe winning the championship this idea of having a having this all-star team i'm not quite sure what you're getting at like how you're kind of deploying these people in terms of them being ambassadors for what you're teaching Yes, but, but in so much as like the same way like a publisher will have a roster and kind of yeah. roll around with a roster, but then like once that publisher either goes away or is less interested in, in publishing that person's book, you, you, you lose that yeah. kind of group mentality. But 
the thing that I'm interested in is like, for example, Connor Williamson, who's in Montreal right now, is interested in 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 doing some teaching. Um, Tyler Landry, who's in Prince Edward Island right now, is interested in doing some teaching. Oliver East, who's in Manchester, um, yeah. uh, England, is yeah. interested. So it's just like I'm trying to start. It's like a franchise where it's just like with the correspondence schools. Then you you know like I help you figure out how to like you go do it so you can do community yeah. outreach and now Oliver East is teaching in his area Connor's teaching in his area you know, so it's just like you spread the gospel so to speak yeah. of comics and then it's taught from from like you know you know middle out or whatever center out yeah. you know so it's just like it's you know comics is an oral tradition just like painting and it's just like I just don't necessarily think that it's you can go teach at these institutions that told you that comics were worthless things that you shouldn't be bothered with for their entire history <laughs> and then now all of a sudden they're having these comics yeah. programs taught by the ceramic teacher or whoever yeah and that's great you know but it's just like you know comics still should be taught by the people who make them i think and in north america that's about 800 people and i know practically all of them you know or in one form or another and so if like if one of my kids wants to, you know, go work for Cartoon Network, well, I know somebody that might know somebody that might be able to get you a test in yeah. Cartoon Network. If you want to work at Marvel Comics, maybe I might know somebody who knows somebody that might know somebody that can get you an interview at Marvel Comics on down the line. So it's just like that's what to me is beneficial about, again, acting like it's like a sports thing because it's, it's more like, you know, you see this a ton of times where the, there's it's a player, then they move into management, they move into coaching, and then, you know, it's just like, and then they're scouts or something like that. So it's just like, I'm interested, like, you know, I have relationships with most of the, you know, alternative publishers in North America and in Europe. And so it's just like, if one of my kids is interested in like being published with some of those people, like maybe that I can, I can turn them that way, but I can also school them on how to self-publish and do all the things themselves. You know, it's just like whatever way you want to go. You can take whatever you want from my system, leave the rest, and move on. But you feel like there's a, a very sort of basic skill set. Because when you're talking about somebody wants to go to work for Marvel, or somebody wants to work for Cartoon Network, or somebody who wants to publish their own zine, I mean, you know, the, those are very different end goals. But you think that there's kind of a universal skill set that, that helps all of for them? For comics making, for sure. Yeah, because comics making, at the end of the day, is, is sequential narrative. Yeah. And hopefully told in color or, told, you know, I mean, you think about it, like most cartoonists don't work in color. They mm. work in black and white. And then in a weekend, they color their whole comic. Yeah. But have they ever drawn in color, directly in color, yeah. straight in color? Do they Have they drawn any bigger than the size of, you know, your standard comic book? That's why comics are so fucking hard to teach, though. You're, you have to teach every aspect of it. You know, I mean, sure, like a lot of them collaborate, but like you have to do art, you have to do storytelling and you know, drawing a line is different than coloring and lettering is, is its own unique thing. So it's got to be one oh. of the most difficult. But again, since we've broken those all those little oh, bits see. apart oh, because so of the got, mainstream, so like, yeah. you know, but like your Jim Ruggs, your Ed Piskers, yeah. your Tom Skillis, they do everything. Yeah. You know, and so it's just like, you know, that's a modular skill set. So it's like the matrix, like all that stuff can be taught in a modular aspect that's just, you know, it's the same as storyboarding. It's just, you know, like, you know, animation. It's the same as, you know, painting, like, you know, because like I'm a lot of the stuff that I'm importing into my teaching that seems radical to a lot of people is really 
common knowledge to yeah. a lot of my painter friends or it's radical like musical ideas but very simple the most simplistic stuff to like music makers you know so it's just like you know directors talk about this movie directors talk about that you just have to know a little bit of everything or know somebody that makes it but like we're not as much of an assembly line thing as we used to be and you know the best cartoonists i think do everything themselves on some level and hopefully they self-publish also you know i mean you know michael michael fife is a great example of that of doing everything you know or you know and, and down to the distribution or whatever you know so you know that's what's exciting about making comics in 2017 whereas 10 years ago this would you know you would have so much had to there would have been no very few models to to show this as and then now i can show these different models because you know somebody like connor williamson you know went on to work for you know he it's not like he did my course and then went on to work for marvel i mean he was great you know it was a miracle you know that he did my course and was you know just i just met him at the right time but like we've continued to work together or like he's allowed me to like just you know kind of like peer over his shoulder and kind of you know say stuff to him and he'll listen to me or not but at the same time like i've just i mean he's capable of doing everything like he's so good that he could choose whatever he wants to do and what he's choosing the the life of the alternative cartoonist that he's choosing to be is a very hard one but it's just like it's so admirable to me because he's just sort of holding back he's waiting you know, to, to, to figure out what he wants to do. He's not deciding like, all right, well, I'm just going to do this because this is my only option. All right, I'm going to do this because this is my only option, which is a very different uh, landscape from even 10 years ago is all I'm trying to say. It's just like, yeah. you know, the, the opportunities in 2017, 18 are so different than 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So, like, it's just great to see people like, I mean, I could name a million people but um you know just working in different media that you know as john fan likes to say uses comics as a passport in order to get into animation or mm. get into yeah. magazine illustration or whatever it is that's going to pay the bills you know or hopefully comics. when you look at you know what what tom's doing in florida or you know or james sturm or any number like matt and jessica uh, you know when they're all trying to kind of uh write the book for for teaching comics if the fundamentals for you are are so clear i mean do you feel that everybody else is really operating from the same starting point i just think there's an there's a very baroque and arcane tradition in comics that is still taught um whether consciously or unconsciously that um is sort of irrelevant to to sort of like what i'm i'm trying like my basic my basic yep. like i teach basically like you know, triangle offense and like everything else is secondary in a weird sense. I mean, it's almost like a trade school version of it versus yeah. like the university right. model. Because like a lot of people say like, well, people that go through your, your program, they all make, you know, the same kind of comics. I'm like, well, that's not true. They might use an eight panel grid or they might use primary colors. Yeah. But other than that, I don't think, you know, it's like 16 pages, yellow, blue and red and eight panel grids. Like, you know, I'm not teaching a style. So I don't teach inking, for example. Like, we don't do any inking, Hmm. you know, because inking is a holdover. Often people make comics because they think – they make comics that look a certain way because they think comics have to look a certain way. And so there's traditions that are followed that aren't necessarily 
necessary in or at least one should be aware of it i'm not saying that inking is bad it's not a fundamental it's a stylistic choice right but just like in general like very generally speaking right most cartoonists draw in black and white think in black and white and make black and white drawings and color is an afterthought and so that's how comics have been made for over a hundred years right the color is generally not made by the pencil. They might make guides, and you might have somebody like a Klaus Janssen who does everything, but even when he makes those guides, he's not cutting those color separations like a Richard Corbin is, right? And so the point is is that a lot of people, a lot of younger makers who I see is like they only make black and white comics that are inked with with a brush pen or whatever, and they've never even considered hmm. making comics in a different way. They've never heard of a Lorenzo Matotti or something like that. There you go, that was Frank Santoro. I hope there weren't too many technical issues with that. I had some uh, problems with the Tascam quarter during the conversation, but I, I think it turned out to be reasonably listenable. Thanks to Frank for doing that and for uh, inviting me into his home, a very cool spot in Pittsburgh. I hope you guys enjoyed the uh, cuckoo clock at one point during that conversation. Tascam actually shut down at the end, and we ended up talking for about an additional hour, which sadly we uh, didn't get on tape. I'm, I'm just mentioning it to make you feel bad that you couldn't hear the rest of that conversation. If you would like to check out Frank's work, you can do so at franksantoro.tumblr.com. If you're interested in signing up for his class or checking out his residency, do that over at comicsworkbook.com. Thanks to him for doing that. Thanks to Jim Rugg. As I mentioned during the conversation, I was in town for some uh, some video stuff that I'm doing for work. Those, those videos are starting to appear now. And I hit up Jim because we hadn't had him on the show. And I think he was traveling to Japan at the time. So he did uh, he, he did the next best thing, which was send me a list of like every single cartoonist living in, living in Pittsburgh. They got a nice, nice thing going on out there. You know, it's uh, an interesting combination of being a, a little bit a little bit cutthroat to some degree, but uh, being very friendly and everyone seems to be a, a big cheerleader of one another. Uh, very much enjoyed my time out there. Uh, if you uh, if you like the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Or if you don't have any cash, then you can uh, rate us over at, at iTunes. That that will help. Give us, uh, give us a five-star rating. That uh, helps with whatever sort of weird algorithm they use on their ends. And uh, will also be helpful when it comes time to get people onto the show. If you've got any feedback, it's rolcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rolcast.tumblr.com. Uh, like us on Facebook, and I think that's about all I got, so stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL. 